0: Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the Scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but I'm aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If this is you, get a few friends to join you and walk through the Word Diet. If this isn't you, I'll bet you have a few friends in that position, so get them together and work your way through the Word Diet. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we in the book of Galatians, the book on the Christian's relationship to the Old Testament law and our struggles with legalism. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. The last two weeks we've been in Galatians 5. We spent one week on Galatians 5, 1, and 13, arguably the climactic and pivotal verses of the entire book. And then the next week we talked about chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. That gets us to a famous passage in chapter 5, verses 19 through 23. We're going to divide it up into its two parts, starting with verses 19 through 21. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God." So here, among other things, Paul lists out 15 acts of the sinful nature, right? That's the context that he's come from in verses 13 through 18. And let's cover those sins or vices first, and then we'll get to the other details in the passage. First, you have three sexual sins. So, perversion of intimate relationships, sexual immorality leads the list. The Greek word here is porneia, which is where we get pornography from any sort of sexual sin, particularly sexual activity, sexual conduct outside the bounds of marriage. This is not because sex is bad or dirty. To the contrary, sex is wonderful, a great gift from God, but within its boundaries. So, it's like a fireplace. So, a fireplace does a great job of harnessing a fire, but a fire outside a fireplace can cause a ton of damage, and that's the case with sexual sins. The second here is impurity. This is general moral uncleanness in thought, word, or deed And the third is debauchery, which is an open, shameless display of the same sorts of things. Then you have two religious sins, perversions of relationship with God. Idolatry is listed first, given how it follows the three sexual sins in verse 19. This probably includes a reference, at least indirectly, to temple prostitution. And the second religious sin here is witchcraft. The Greek word here is pharmakeia, which is where we get the word pharmacy. So, this is the worship of evil powers particularly with substances. So substance abuse has some connection here. We also might imagine superstitions as a contemporary application of what Paul's writing about here. Later in verse 20 into verse 21, you have eight social sins, perversion of other relationships. The lead off sin here is hatred, which is plural, implying that we're talking about between groups and it's connected to discord. We also see jealousy, which often ends in fits of rage people who are always on the defensive, they take stuff personally, they're hypersensitive. Then we have selfish ambitions. This is the opposite of what Paul will write in Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. It's interesting that the word ambition is used in a positive way by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11, and 12 make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. So, ambition per se is not the issue. It's selfish ambition, which Paul lists here, and in Philippians 2, contrary to the ambitions to be godly, as in 1 Thessalonians 4. Many times we lack ambition of any sort, and that's a sin of a different type. Then we have a reference to dissension and faction, again, all under the umbrella of discord. Prominent passage here is Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. As an aside, you might imagine, what would I put in that list? What do I think God put in that list? Well, here's what Proverbs says. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. I doubt that's the list that the average church-going Christian would come up with, but those are the things that God finds detestable, including the topics that Paul is talking about here. And finally, we have a mention of envy, which is a desire for others' possessions. James 3.16, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Because this is so prevalent, that's one likely explanation for why it shows up as the last of the Ten Commandments, do not covet. In fact, it's covetousness that leads to Paul's realization of the depth of his own sin. Romans 7, 7 and 8, Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. Francis Schaeffer observes that we break this last commandment before we break any of the others, and thus we always break at least two commandments, and covetousness and enviousness are in direct opposition to Matthew 22, 37-39's command to love God and to love others. Now, to be clear, this is not about having desires. It's when those desires turn into demands—envy, jealousy, and the like—that we get ourselves into trouble. I think we can infer as well from Paul's list here that disunity was huge for the Galatians, given the dominance of those sins, and they're mentioned here. And again, that's not particularly shocking, given the focus on legalism, which typically leads to these sorts of problems. Two final sins here related to alcohol, perverting nature, and God's good gifts. Notice that Paul concludes the passage with, and the like. So this is a representative list. It's not meant to be comprehensive. It's funny, legalists often try to make things comprehensive, come up with a complete set of rules and lists and things to do and not do, but you simply can't do that. The law is inherently limited in that way. I like what Tim Keller says about this passage. Another way to break down this list into categories is to notice that some of the sins are characteristic of religious people, while others are more characteristic of non-religious people. This list shows us that God does not make the kind of distinctions that we commonly do, seeing sex and drink as more sinful than jealousy and ambition. Whether we're talking about individuals or the church against the world, Keller concludes we are much better at noticing the works of someone else's sinful nature than we are at battling our own A few other phrases in this passage deserve our attention. Notice that he says in verse 19 that these acts are obvious. And generally, this is a yes and no sort of thing. Often we focus on behavioral, easy-to-see sins rather than spiritual sins that Paul is emphasizing here, or another angle we focus on sins of commission rather than sins of omission. We see things that are concrete over abstract. But I think Paul's definitely right here in that these sins are more obvious than we often imagine them to be. But even for pagans, it's obvious for many people to see when others are engaged in this, and they don't find it very pleasant. C.S. Lewis talks about this in terms of pride and that we smell pride in other people, and whether you're pagan or Christian, no one likes that. But back to Paul's point, the sin is obvious to others even if it's not obvious to us. And the last phrase to chew on is, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. The phrase just before that is, as I did before. So this is something he's apparently warned them about previously, which makes this a more serious problem. The phrase, live like this, alludes to a practice and a pattern. There's a habit here. It seems to identify their character. And this is not a workspace salvation. This is not a lose your salvation sort of verse. It merely makes the point, as in Galatians 5, that there are two basic ways to live. There's life in the Spirit, life under the law, life in the flesh. And if you're living like the law, living under the flesh, if that's the sort of lifestyle you're pursuing, then that invites some very difficult questions, hopefully by you and certainly by close friends, to say, hey, what are you doing here? This is not the way our team lives. These behaviors are not consistent with life in the Spirit. That's the point here. There's a dichotomy between life in the Spirit and life in the flesh, life under law, that Paul has been talking about all of Galatians, but especially here in the first half of chapter 5. So, how do we avoid these things? Well, we go back to verse 16. So, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. This is a list of things that gratify the desires of the sinful nature, and how do you avoid them? We talked about this in the last episode. You walk by the Spirit. Second, Paul will give us another hint in verse 24 when he talks about crucifying the sinful nature. And I think the other thing we can get from this list itself is that the sinful nature has its own signals and barometers. Either you didn't receive the Spirit, which is why you're living like this, or you have quenched the Spirit, as talked about in 1 Thessalonians 5. You're certainly not living by the Spirit. I like what CS Lewis says here in terms of metaphor when he talks about the rats in our basement that we do things and we should use that to measure ourselves to, when we see rats in the basement so to speak that that should be an occasion not for us to hide or pretend but to take it as an opportunity to look at why we're doing those things why are we living life by the law and the flesh rather than by the spirit so treat these as a barometer when you see any of these 15 in play in yourself and your close friends Say something, do something about it, question why you're living in a way that's inconsistent with the spirit. Now the back and forth continues with verses 22 and 23 that we've seen throughout Galatians five. Another angle to consider is that Paul is always interested in not simply subtracting the bad, but adding the good. To me, the most prominent example of this is the last part of Ephesians four, where he talks about the old man and the new man. And then in verses 25 through 32, goes through a series of categories where one makes a decision to live as if the old man or live as if the new man. And it's a different metaphor, different language here, but the same idea is in place. Romans 13, 13, and 14 says, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Notice the list is much like what we just covered. Verse 14, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. So, very similar to what Paul has written and will write in the next two verses. About this principle of replacing the bad with the good, Matthew Henry says, It is not enough that we cease to do evil, but we must learn to do well. Our Christianity obliges us not only to die unto sin, but to live unto righteousness, not only to oppose the works of the flesh, but to bring forth the fruits of the Spirit too. And so it reads here and in other passages like the choice is to either succumb to sin and fall into legalism or to pursue the fruits of the Spirit, which we'll talk about in the next two verses. There is no neutral here. There is no just avoiding sin. Here's how Jesus puts it in Luke 11 verses 23 through 26. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And then he describes spiritual warfare through a metaphor. Verse 24, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. And here Jesus is describing the legalist, the person under law, under flesh, and it can work for a time. It can get the house clean. It can get rid of the impure spirit, but it cannot be permanent. It doesn't work that way. If you don't replace the stuff in the house with something better, the evil spirit comes back in a terribly unpleasant manner. All right, it's time to take a break. Please check out Proclaim from Pure Radio, Kentucky Endless Christian Community Bulletin, available online at pureradio.org and with free paper editions in store at 200 locations. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Right now we're in the second half of Galatians 5. In the previous segment, we covered verses 19 through 21's work of the flesh. The back and forth continues here in Paul's writing. In verses 22 and 23, he turns to the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. The first thing to note here is the noun in play. It's fruit here. It was acts or works in verses 19 through 21. So, first of all, we have a connection to works and obedience and scripture elsewhere uses the idea of good works, for example, in Ephesians 2.10. So it's not that works are bad per se, but again, in the context of Galatians, it's works out of the flesh that are the issue. Works driven by legalism, which takes us to duty, self-righteousness, improper motives, and the like. I like what Wiersbe says here. The contrast between works and fruit is important. A machine in a factory works and turns out a product, but it could never manufacture fruit. Fruit must grow out of life. And in the case of the believer, it is the life of the spirit. When you think of works, you think of effort, labor, strain, and toil. When you think of fruit, you think of beauty, quietness, the unfolding of life. Second is the verb in play. This is fruit is expressed in the singular. Verse 19 was acts are expressed in the plural. A few thoughts on this. The first is the parallel that I always find amazing in Revelation 20 in the judgment that there are books plural of works, and book singular of life. And we're not exactly sure what this means. My favorite interpretation of that is that there are books of works because so many things are being judged. For the Christian, the book of life merely has our name or perhaps the name of Jesus, and that's it. It's a pretty short book compared to people trying to justify themselves by works and all the damage they cause by sin, which is what Paul underlines in verses 19 through 21. Second, I think we can think of the singular here as appropriate because all of this comes from the unity we have with the Spirit. Now, third, these are obviously plural acts and characteristics, but all fruit do come together and are connected. This list is not meant to be a cafeteria thing. It's not meant to be, well, I'm pretty good at this or not that good at this fruit. They're all supposed to come in with life in the Spirit. They all go together. If you're not good at one or two of these You're probably fooling yourself about how good you are with the others. They tend to go together in lockstep. Now, fruit is an extremely powerful and much-used metaphor in the scriptures. MacArthur notes that fruit is used in 24 of the 27 New Testament books. I like what Tim Keller says about fruit in his commentary, and you can picture this coming right out of one of his sermons, but he notes that fruit are gradual, that they are inevitable unless they have been impeded in some way, They're based on internals. The fruit are an external manifestation of something that is internal, and they're symmetrical. About this point, Keller says, when we look at the list of fruits, we notice that we are naturally stronger in some than others, but our strengths apart from the Holy Spirit are due to natural temperament. We have a trait through brain chemistry and or early training or to natural self-interest. We learned a trait in order to handle some issue or condition we met. So Keller's taking a different angle on what I said earlier. If you don't have balance in the fruit, it's probably not coming from the Spirit. It's some natural ability that God has granted you with in the first place. If it's from the Spirit, it's going to be symmetrical. It's going to be in balance. So again, if you're not doing well on one of the fruit, it's time to take a close look at what's going on. Notice that Paul does not use seed or potential, but uses fruit, which is the end product. So this implies some nurturing, but the emphasis is on the end result the end product. It's also of the Spirit, which puts more focus on the Spirit's role. Certainly, we participate in the development of this fruit, but it's ultimately God's provision through the Spirit which causes this to happen in the first place. Notice also there's no mention of leaves here. In fact leaves are actually closer to legalism because of the showiness of them. The external, what God's after is not leaves per se, but fruit. Reminds one of Jesus in Matthew twenty one, nineteen, with the fig tree that looked productive but wasn't, had great leaves, but no fruit. It's not about the show, it's about actual production. Of course, Jesus runs with this metaphor quite a bit as well, that good fruit naturally comes from good trees. Matthew seven, fifteen through twenty. Watch out for false prophets that come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Another great passage on this is Isaiah 5, which opens with the vineyard, but then descends into what one might call stink fruit, as Israel's conduct is not consistent with the vineyard that God has planted. Fruit is also connected to roots. That fruit is a byproduct of the roots that we put down. We see this in John 15. Let me read verses 4 through 8. Remain in me and as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Down to verse 7, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples." We're only evidently disciples of Jesus insofar as we show fruit. Failure here is a failure to walk in the Spirit, and probably as a result of living under the law, living in the flesh. Francis Schaeffer says, If I am bringing forth something other than the fruit of the Spirit, the only reason is that I have grieved the Holy Spirit, who is our divine guest, as believers. Back to the words of jesus matthew 12:33 33-35 make a tree good and its fruit will be good or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad for a tree is recognized by its fruit you brood of vipers how can you who are evil say anything good for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him and so there jesus connects trees fruit heart and mouth all together The other great passage on this metaphor is Psalm 1, 1 through 3, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. In contrast, you might think of legalism as a telephone pole rather than a tree, and it's got fake fruit stapled onto it might look like a tree, especially from a distance, but it's not. It's fake. It looks like it's of the Spirit, but in fact, it's of the flesh. It's under the law. So now let's get to Paul's list of nine fruit. Three groups of three. The first three are general Christian virtues, the great ones, in fact. They indicate our attitude toward God, love, which is the foundation of all things. First of all, God's love for us, and then our love for other people, again, the two great commandments Romans 13 says it's the fulfillment of the law 1 John 3:16 this is how we know what love is Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters or 1 John 4:7 dear friends let us love one another for love comes from God everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God John 15 greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends Joy is second, independent of circumstances, rather than happiness, which is dependent on circumstances. Jesus, in the same long passage in John, says in John 15, 13, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Peace within and between individuals also gets mentioned in John chapter 16, verse 13, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Then Paul gives three social virtues, our attitude toward people, patience, which is forbearance, under provocation, without retaliation, having a long fuse, exhibiting mercy, a crucial aspect of ministry and in our own personal sanctification. Gentleness or kindness is the second in this group of three. Again, just how Jesus showed it to us. Romans 2.4, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? And then the third in the trio is goodness, a more general reference to an upright soul. This is in contrast to what seems to be an upright soul with legalism, but in fact is not, and this is reaching out to others. John MacArthur notes that Romans 5-7 implies a difference between righteousness and goodness. A righteous person could evict a widow for not paying her rent. Righteousness is following the standard. Goodness would pay the bill for her. God is both righteous and good, and his believers are called to be as well. Gordon Fee notes that this fruit and really the whole passage are in the context of Galatians 5.15, so it's a description of corporate life, not simply individual piety. All of these require others to be around them in order to practice these virtues, to see the fruit come out. And finally, three personal virtues. Faithfulness, which implies tenacity and loyalty. In Acts 6.5, it's combined with the Spirit. Gentleness, or meekness, which is defined as power under control and then self-control itself, ironically, not coming from ourselves, but from the Spirit. Lord, help us to see the acts of the flesh as illness in our spiritual selves, and help us strive to cooperate with you to produce the fruit of the Spirit. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet. Right now, we're wrapping up Galatians 5, and we're in the middle of our discussion of the fruit of the Spirit in verses 22 and 23. Let me reread that. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. So as a reminder, that first word, but, tells us that we're changing gears. And this is along with the back and forth we've seen throughout Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21, were the acts of the sinful nature. Here we have the fruit of the Spirit. We've already talked about the nine fruit in some detail, but a few comments still left to make. First, let's consider that last phrase, against such things there is no law. And I don't know if you caught it, but that's pretty hilarious. I mean, first of all, it's just funny in and of itself. Against such things there is no law. Why would you write a law against those things? It's even funnier in light of his audience. He's going up against the legalists who are all about the law. And he's making the point that there's no need for law here. It's all about the spirit. It's all about the fruit of the spirit. And law has no place here. Even to the world, these things are usually unobjectionable. They're usually pleasing to other people. And so the phrase, there is no law, is both perfect and hilarious. The second, the idea of such things indicates that, like the acts of the sinful nature, that this is not meant to be a comprehensive list. But that said, this is a better organized list, and purposefully, I think, compared to the acts of the flesh. Remember there, there was some organization, but it mostly read like a dog pile of 15 complaints and sins that Paul was listing. I like what Peterson says about this in contrast. He says, when Paul listed the consequences of living by compulsion, the list was random and anarchic. Fifteen items were named. The list was as disorderly in arrangement as in content. The law of sin produces lawless disorder. Paradoxically, a life determined by compulsions results in chaos, while a life of freedom falls naturally and easily into designs of beauty. For when Paul lists the results of living freely in response to God, the list is balanced and symmetrical, three groups of three items each, the number three being the most symmetrical of numbers. A three-legged stool cannot wobble. And again, we have the irony. It's the legalist who imagines that the order that they seek through law is going to be ideal. And in fact, it's not. It's freedom, properly lived out, as Paul is laying out in Galatians 5, that leads to order and beauty in God's great and good kingdom. There's a similar passage in 2 Peter 1 verses 3 through 9. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desires." And to take a little break here from what Peter writes, notice there's not a big reference to law there or anything else. It's a focus on the great and precious promises of God so that we may participate in the divine nature, not behave ourselves in a certain way. Peter is talking in much more expansive terms than a legalist would be comfortable with. Back to verse 5, for this very reason make every effort, so there is effort involved, to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Again, this is a noteworthy list, very similar to what Paul has laid out and talking about increasing these qualities. Again, not things you don't do, but things you do, and in increasing measure. Peter says if we have these things, it'll keep us from being ineffective and unproductive in our knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if you don't have them, you're nearsighted and blind because you forget that you've been cleansed from your past sins. Again, this is the problem of the legalist. They're missing the target. They're forgetting their past. They're relying on the law. It doesn't work. So, one of the tough things here is that the list of Paul and Peter both are difficult to measure in our lives. That said, when we live like this, we leave at least an unconscious impression on others Think of 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 through 16, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing, to the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. As we walk through life, we're leaving an aroma behind us of goodness, mercy, all the gifts that Paul and Peter have described in these passages. That idea has caused me to reinterpret the popular Psalm 23, verse 6, Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I used to think of that as God following after us, but really God leads us. I think it's more the aroma idea that Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians 2, that as we walk through life with the Lord, goodness and love follow me like an aroma all the days of our lives. Or think about the metaphors of salt and light. They don't make any show of themselves like the legalist does. They're just doing their things quietly, getting the job done. And even if these are difficult metrics in earthly terms, they are the measure in kingdom terms. Romans 14:17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what's being measured, even if it's difficult for us to come up with metrics to see how we're doing. Ultimately, this speaks to how Christ is formed in believers. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So, the key for us is not to quench the Spirit. As Paul writes about in 1 Thessalonians 5.19. The Spirit is leading. The Spirit wants to make these changes. The Spirit instructs. The Spirit inspires. The Spirit empowers if we don't get in the way. And the result of that will be the fruit of the Spirit. And that's the ideal. But the tough thing is that we live between the lists of 19 through 21, the acts of the sinful nature, and the fruit of the Spirit in 22 and 23. We live in that tension. We're trying increasingly to be in verses 22 and 23 by yielding to the Spirit as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in us through His Spirit. Let me give you one more suggestion before we move on. I've already made the argument that the gifts of the Spirit should be symmetrical, that they all go together. And so I think if we look at our own lives and we look at this list and we find one of those gifts that seems to be on the lower end, first of all, that's the one we need to work on, right? That's the lowest in terms of the barometer. And so what do we do about that? I would suggest that you pray about it. You pray for one of those fruit. You pray about it and you pray for opportunities to grow in that. A dissertation advisor, I remember him telling a story about having a desire to pray for patients. That day, a grad student shows up from China and knocks on his office door out of nowhere and doesn't have anything, doesn't have an apartment, doesn't have things to furnish an apartment, so on and so forth. And so my dissertation advisor spent the day with this Chinese student working out apartments, furnishings, and the like. And he got to the end of his day, and he realized his prayer had been answered. He had prayed for patience, and he got the opportunity to work on patience. May the Lord do the same with us. That takes us to verse 24. If verses 16 through 23 are on why it's so critical to live by the Spirit, verses 24 and 25 are why it's so reasonable to walk in the Spirit— Given who we are as children of Christ and God and dwell by the Holy Spirit, and how to do it. In an important sense, we can't live the way we used to because we aren't who we used to be. We have a new identity. Verse 24 says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. So the first phrase I won't spend much time on, but it's the idea of remembering that you belong to Jesus. Reminds me of Paul in Romans 6 and the emphasis on reckoning. There's a lot of this that goes on in the mind that we remember, we think, we understand our new identity, and we live by that. Big phrase here, though, is have crucified. And the first thing to notice, this is expressed in the past tense. It's a done deal. It's 2,000 years ago well, at least historically, and then for us, it's whenever we become born again. We're crucified, buried, raised, and live with Christ. So we still have a capacity to sin, but we are free from its power. Paul will make a similar argument in chapter 6, verse 14, with respect to the world. Here he's focusing on the crucifixion of ourselves, reminiscent of Colossians 2, 11 through 14. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So again, the idea of crucifying the sin nature, not ourselves per se, but the sin nature that's at battle with the spirit within us. This is the primary consideration for what he will describe as the new creation in chapter 6, verse 15, a phrase he also uses elsewhere. Now, notice also that this one is done not to us, but by us. This is a matter of both God's provision and our participation. It is for those who belong to Christ. It's part of our new identity. 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20 says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. You are bought at a price therefore honor God with your bodies. The earlier verse on crucifixion was the famous Galatians 2.20. We've been crucified with Christ. We no longer live, but Christ now lives in us. And that's not quite what we're talking about here. Again, this has a much greater focus on our effort in it, that we have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. And so it starts with Christ, but part of this is on us. Part of this is not quenching the Spirit. Part of this is what Paul has talked about, not giving in to bondage, slavery, license, abuse of grace, and the like. Likewise, it's not quite the same as what he'll say in chapter 6, verse 14, where he talks there about the crucifixion of the world to us. In all of this, we're looking at Romans 8, 1 and 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. John Stott says, in those verses, we are told that by faith union with Christ, we have been crucified with him. But here it is we who have taken action. We have crucified our old nature. Now, this is a challenging truth. It's hard to understand. Maybe we can apprehend it, but not comprehend it fully. We know that we accept it through mental assent to some extent. We know that we have to make choices here. We're able to see it through a clearer conscience, we have the empowerment to do better we practice spiritual disciplines. Remember that the last fruit of the Spirit was self-control. We have Romans 12, which talks about a transforming of the mind. So, I can't really give you much more than that except to depend on the Spirit and to yield to the Spirit, to pray, to listen to godly counsel, all the things that go into that as you try to live out this crucial truth that Paul is trying to describe. The last thing here is the use of the picture of crucifixion. The first thing to note is that it's going beyond the famous call by Jesus in Mark 8:34 to take up your cross and follow me. Stott observes that we must not only take up our cross and walk with it, but actually see that the execution takes place. We are actually to take the flesh, our willful and wayward self, and metaphorically speaking, nail it to the cross. This is Paul's graphic description of repentance, of turning our back on the old life of selfishness and sin repudiating it finally and utterly. Stott goes on to talk about the description of crucifixion as an apt form of punishment for the flesh. It's not decapitation, it's not a few days in jail or any other sort of punishment you might think of, but crucifixion. But what is crucifixion? It's a slow and painful process. It's lengthy but ultimately decisive, as with the inner conflict and its resolution with us going to heaven, It also involves the hands and feet, which are a picture of action, and then at least for Christ, the side, which is a picture of the heart. And it is to be crucified. It is to be put to death. But Stott observes, we begin to fondle it, to caress it, to long for its release, even to try to take it down again from the cross. We need to learn to leave it there. It's crucified. Leave it alone. All right, it's time to take a break. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Questions and comments are welcome on my Facebook. Previous episodes are available through podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and so on. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're wrapping up Galatians 5 today, and we've reached verses 25 and 26. Verse 25 says, "...since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit." Reminds me of two other passages, Colossians 2, 6, and 7. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. And then Romans 8, 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. So the phrase live by the Spirit should remind you of Galatians 5.16 and that great verse. In verse 24, we had the cross. Now we have verse 25's power of the Holy Spirit. Again, Paul continues his back and forth here. It was between the acts of the sinful nature and the fruit of the Spirit, and living under law versus promise, he's gone back and forth. He even does it here within the life of the believer. The reference to the cross in verse 24 and the power of the Holy Spirit in verse 25. This is also a reference to old man, new man, planting flowers, but also pulling the weeds, taking care of death, but also living a life. The other phrase here is in step with the spirit, and that's in contrast to being in step with the world or the culture or the flesh or even the church. The verb in step also implies not just passive submission, but being active and purposeful, walking in the proper direction. It's only then that we will see the fruit. Failure to walk in the Spirit is going to be awkward. We're trying to go one direction, the Spirit's trying to go another, and often it's going to be awkward looking. The Christian trying to live in their own strength is in a bad position, and it often looks strange because they're supposed to live one way, the Spirit's trying to pull them one way, but they make decisions to go another way. In other words, go God's way in utter dependence on the Spirit. If we look at this through the lens of the book of Romans, we're trying to figure out how to go from the salvation that Paul describes in Romans 5 to the Christian life that Paul describes in Romans 12, the living sacrifice that opens that great chapter. A lot of times people want to go straight from Romans 3 to Romans 12, but they forget about the means to that life, which is in Romans 8, verses 5 and 6, life through the Holy Spirit. Or maybe they want to skip from Romans 5 to Romans 8. And that's better, but it still omits the necessary wrestling that every believer has to go through, as Paul has described here, between the sin nature and the spirit. There's a struggle that Paul describes in Romans 6 and 7 that is part of every Christian's life. Romans 6.6 6 says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Then down to verse 11, In the same way, count yourselves, or reckon yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, There is a battle going on here and there is a balance between the sin nature and the spirit and a battle that's going on between those two if we get our understanding of those two out of balance we put too much strength on the sin nature or too little emphasis on the spirit we're not going to make much progress if we see ourselves chiefly as a sinner rather than a child of god we're not going to have the progress we should have in walking in the spirit If we're trying to follow God with just a little bit of help from the Holy Spirit, but it's mostly in our own strength, again, that's not going to work. It's walking with the Spirit, living by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit that allows us to live the sort of life that Paul has been describing. So to keep in step with the Spirit requires that we expect the Spirit to be on the move. He's on the move. We need to get in line with him. And so going with the Spirit is like the Spirit going with us. Think about how the New Testament portrays both us in Christ and Christ in us. Whose agenda and whose strength are we living in? We also need to work on cultivating spiritual discernment and sensitivity. Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. John 16.13, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. If the Spirit's speaking, we need to listen. That starts with solitude, prayer, silence, and a desire to obey, that we trust God's good counsel rather than merely looking to God for input or feedback. We need to obey God fully, walk, keep, and step with the Spirit. Experientially, the Spirit's leading can be described as a burning or a peace. Sometimes it's an unsettledness, Sometimes it's a matter of changing our desires. Psalm 37, 4, Take delight in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. And making sure those desires are in line with Scripture and godly counsel, we can be confident we are being led by the Spirit and walking in the Spirit. We can also engage in what Paul might call fruit inspection. Verses 19 through 23, Paul gives out these two lists, and we can look at our lives and see where they best fit. Are the characteristics of our lives more in line with verses 19 through 21 or verses 22 and 23? We certainly should be willing to take risks in the Spirit rather than playing it safe, which we're so prone to do. And finally, we need to watch circumstances. Think of the closed and open doors that Paul deals with throughout his ministry. When the doors open the doors close, we need to take that as a sense of the Spirit's leading. And then we wrap up chapter 5 with verse 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Again, quite different than verse 25, a negative in contrast to the positive of verse 25. Again, the back and forth that we see throughout this chapter. I think the first verse this reminds me of is Romans 12 3 which follows Romans 12, 1 and 2 on transforming the mind, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. The first thing Paul says after that in verse 3 is, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Again, the same idea here of conceit, avoiding it, and immersing yourself instead in humility as you walk with the Spirit. Those things are simply not of the Spirit. And when you go that direction, what's going to happen? Well, the provoking and envying of each other, the sort of things that he talked about in his long list in verses 19 through 21. John Stott says, Our conduct towards others is largely determined by our opinion of ourselves. If we regard ourselves as superior to other people, we challenge them, for we want them to know and feel our superiority. If, on the other hand, we regard them as superior to us, we envy them. In both cases, our attitude is due to our having such a fantasy opinion of ourselves that we cannot bear rivals, whether they are superior or inferior to us in our opinion. I want to close out this segment by reading the first half of Colossians 3. It always strikes me as interesting, the parallels between Galatians and Romans, and often Ephesians and Colossians are quite similar. They have some different angles and emphases, but quite similar. A basic manual on discipleship, if you will. But Colossians also has considerable overlap with the sort of life that Paul is trying to describe in Galatians, and I think we see that in the first half of Colossians 3. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, for Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God." Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Hopefully you can hear the echoes of Galatians 5 and all of Galatians through this great passage in the first half of Colossians 3. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.